0: Uh, we are in our series, How Long, O Lord? And uh, today we are in the second part of the first chapter. Now, let me get this, let me try to, try to before we go any further, I want to talk about the pronunciation of this prophet. Uh, I've heard different people say a lot of different things. And so Actually, as a staff, we got into a debate on how do you pronounce this prophet. So we looked it up for a Semitic scholar, and what do you think it is? Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Neither. Habakkuk. Yeah, you're all going to say that, right? But it's Habakkuk. It's actually it's a Semitic term, and it's like my family Habakkuk in it. Okay, it's a good way for you to remember. Uh, but it's Habakkuk is how you say it. Uh, and he is a minor prophet, and we say minor. We don't mean that it, is a, uh, it means less than, it means a smaller book. And so we're talking about Habakkuk. Is he is a prophet? He is prophesying to the nation of Judah. And Pastor Steve Lombardo gave a bit of a background, so I don't want to repeat a, a lot of what he said last week. But as I was putting this together, I, I was reminded of a, um, a TV show that I was watching, and it wasn't a United States TV show. It was actually from different countries. I've been watching different shows uh, from different countries, just trying to to expand my horizons a little bit, see if I can understand different things in different cultures. And one thing, after I was watching this one TV show, and I can't remember what country it was from, and, and the show ended and I was bothered by it. Because it, all, it didn't put a bow at the end of the, the show. Like the bad guy ended up winning in the end, and it really put a bad taste in my mouth. And it made me realize that almost every show that I watch or I've seen in the United States, it, whether it's something on CBS or ABC, it always has a bow tied on it at the end. There's always a happy ending. The good guy always wins. And we have a real big distaste for things not ending happily in our shows. Now, in other countries, that's not the case. Matter of fact, Ravi Zacharias, who is the uh, Christian Indian apologist, he was uh, talking about visiting uh, Cambodia, if I remember correct. And he had uh, seen this play, and he was really bothered at the ending of the play where the bad guy won. And as he was leaving, he was talking with his translator, and the translator could see that he was really bothered by the ending of the play. And he said, why does it bother you? He goes, because the good guy should have won. He says, the good guy should have won. And he said, I realized at that moment in time that I had been conditioned by what I had seen so often in the United States that the good guy always wins. But this guy smiled and said, but that's not how it's been in our culture. The good guy has not always won. And so it it made me think a little bit. Why do we have such a desire to see the good guy win? Because we have a desire for justice. But there are times in life where the good guy doesn't always win where things don't always work out the way that we wanted it to. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are times in our lives where we go through where God doesn't make sense. It might be in your marriage. It started to disintegrate. It could have been with your parents, something that went wrong in your family. It could have been in your job or your career. Things didn't work out right. When you, you found out you just got fired or your spouse says, I'm leaving you. Or maybe you, got a, you felt like you'd led a good life and you were following God and then you get a health report and you go, this health report says that I have stage four cancer. Lord, why? Haven't I followed you? And we think that we're supposed to have everything good for us. We think it's always supposed to be good. We, we never will go through a hard time. And in many ways, that's what Habakkuk was going through. He was wondering, trying to figure out why that all of this evil was going on in the nation of Judah? What was going on? How, how, Lord, how long are you going to let this continue? Many of you might wonder that now. You see evil that's going on across the United States. You've heard of different things and seen different things. I mean, some of you have been around long enough to, to see and remember when a lot of people were in church on Sunday and people had respect for the, their elders or they had an understanding of what right and wrong was. And it seems to now, to today that we are so completely confused that we can't even determine who's a boy and who's a girl. That's where our culture has become. And we're wondering, how long, Lord, how long is it going to be before you respond? Aren't we not doing right? I mean, it seems like these people are continuing on and doing it, and not just doing it, but having fun doing it, and nothing seems to go wrong for them. How do we respond to that? What do we do when God doesn't make sense? Because there are times where God's definitely not going to make sense. So today we're going to look at this passage to see what do we do when God doesn't make sense. We're going to look at, and and as we've already seen, in the first four verses, Habakkuk lays out his complaint before God. He is calling out to God. And this is not a thing that we we should not do. This is something we should do. As C.S. Lewis said, don't go to God with what should be in you. Go to God with what is in you. If you've got a struggle, if you've got some issue, lay it out. That's why I encourage you to read the Psalms, to pray the Psalms. Because the Psalms speak to God for us. And you see throughout the Psalms, how long, O Lord, how long, how long will we go through this? How long will I have to deal with this issue? How long will you sit idly by as I am struggling and limping along and feeling so, so lost and alone? How long, O Lord? And we see that same thought carried into Habakkuk as he is looking and wondering, How long, O Lord? And then we see God respond. But see, when we ask God a question, you need to be prepared for the answer. And understand that God, we're not always going to like the answers that God gives. And that's definitely the case with what's going on. Because God shows up. God answers his prayer, but he takes what he understands and blows it out of the water. And shows him something that he was not ready for. And we have to be able to say and understand that as we come to God with whatever our issues are, we have to be able to accept and know that God wants our best, but God is in charge. God is going to direct us in a place that we may not like, but it's for our good. That's where I find a lot of Christians struggle. Because we think that God is always supposed to give us good and nothing's ever to be bad. And when everything goes bad, we want to get out of the bad so we can stay in the good. But the issue and the real problem that many of us have is we get really lazy when everything is good and we're always comfortable. I'm amazed at this as I look at my brothers and sisters in different parts of the world, especially where the church is being persecuted. They're often not asking to get out of their situation. They're asking for the grace and the power to bear up underneath that situation. Whereas in the United States, we're very allergic to pain. We're addicted to comfort. And we have to realize that God doesn't always want us to be comfortable. He doesn't always want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy, and he wants us to be joyful, which is different than happy. As we really try to show and delight in who he is. So today, as we delve within this passage, I hope that your heart and your mind will be open as we see what we are to do when God doesn't make sense. And we're going to examine how he doesn't make sense here, especially What is it that he's doing? Why doesn't this make sense? Why is this so difficult for us, especially here in the United States or in the West, to receive this truth? And then what does God want us to do in light of it? And how how are we to live? How are we to think? How are we to pray and see God's face in the middle of all this? But before we go any further, let's pray and ask God by his ho- that His Holy Spirit might come and speak to us and convict us and draw us closer to Himself. Let's pray.
1: Holy God. Lord, we acknowledge that we are not coming into the presence of a mere man, a mere mortal, but the immortal Immovable, unchanging, all-powerful, holy, transcendent God. Lord, we ask you to fill this place with your presence. Convict us, draw us near to yourself, and help us to see you high and lifted up, but also to understand and know that we cannot tame you we cannot control you. Help us to see ourselves in the light of who you are. And help us to respond in obedience and holiness and in the delight that we are beneficiaries of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. So speak to us, grow us, mature us, convict us, and lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Let's jump right in into our passage. And as we do, I would like to give a little bit of background for those that weren't here last week. Um, remember, the kingdom of Israel had split into two, between north and south. Israel had become known as the northern kingdom. The whole nation was Israel. But uh, when it became split, it was known as the nation of Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. From the very get-go, the northern kingdom was corrupt. Uh, they were not true worshippers of the one true God but began to become what we call syncretists where they were combining the religion of the land uh, with with uh, Judaism and they were modifying it and directing it for their own personal preferences and what they saw fit. Whereas the nation of Judah, uh, for for the most part, had... Bumps along the road, actually they, they had a lot of bumps along the road, but they did have some good leaders and many people kept to the worship of the one true God, uh, although eventually uh, Judah turns as a whole. But we know that they, the kingdom split into two about 930 B.C., And as this northern kingdom continued on, their trajectory and their degradation, if you will, this downward spiral of disobedience as they turned from God, they were eventually taken into exile by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And then they are basically removed from history. Uh, We don't see anything more about them. They are known sometimes as the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel, but they disappear. They no longer come back uh, within history that we see in its entirety. But the nation of Judah continues on for about another uh, almost 200 years, actually less than that, probably around 140 years, until about 586 B.C., when they are conquered by the Babylonians and the Jewish temple is destroyed. And this is taking place um, way, um, about 200 years, excuse me, 136 years before that. No, excuse me. Judah went along for another 136 years after the northern kingdom went into exile, and then they again would be conquered by the Babylonians and taken into captivity. Now, as we saw, Israel was corrupt from the start, but Judah had seen pockets of revival under various kings. There were 21 rulers, or kings of Judah, which could fall into three categories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. If we're looking at the kings of, kings of Judah, that's where we would find them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, out of the 21 kings, only five of them would be considered really within the good category. Individuals such as Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And Josiah reigned from about 640 to 609 B.C., and he tried to turn the nation back to God because remember the people had had a real struggle with being drawn back into this corruption and idolatry and he actually steers the nation back he becomes king at the ripe old age of 8 He becomes a very young king, and he uh, is directed to seek God. He delights in God. He keeps actually many of the the worship of the true God, reinstitutes a lot of the biblical practices during his reign. And early on, there is discovered within the temple, as he is clearing it out, doing a, a remodeling project, if you will, that they discover this book of the law. And he has it right in his presence, and then he repents. He realizes that the wrath of God is going to remain upon the people unless they turn back. And so he tries to turn the entire nation back to God, which is a wonderful thing. This is a a great thing, but there becomes a, a very difficult thing when you try to legislate morality. And he tries to steer them back in many ways. He himself is seeking God. Um, I mean, he's trying to steer them back, and the people, there's some that turn, but after he dies, they go right back to where they were before, and he ends up dying because of some disobedience in his life, he ends up dying in a uh, battle, and he uh, leaves the scene, and then the nation of Israel goes right back to where they were. So the nation becomes very ripe for God's judgment. As you learned last week, these people were addicted to violence. They were addicted to lust. They were addicted to immorality. They were worshiping in the high places, which means they weren't worshiping in the way that God prescribed. In other words, each were becoming their own gods, if you could imagine that. And People were dictated by their own desires. They didn't want to submit or surrender to do what God wanted to do. And God was building up judgment for them. And here comes... Habakkuk. He comes along and he says, Lord, why hasn't, haven't you responded in judging the wicked or bringing greater revival in the nation? And in verse 5, 11, 5 through 11 we see God's response. Because to Habakkuk it doesn't make any sense. Let's look at verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that would You would not believe if told. Now, before we go any further, just a word of caution here. This verse itself, some of the people I've seen take this verse and, like, oh, God's going to do a wonderful thing. They take this verse and they say, God is going to do a work in our midst that we wouldn't believe. Okay? The understanding of this verse, especially in this context, it's not a good work that God's getting ready to do. In other words, He's saying, I'm going to knock you into the middle of next week. You want, I mean, it's what he's saying is, I'm going to do a wonder. I'm going to do such an amazing thing, but it's going to freak you out. It's so bad that you can't even begin to get it. It's going to be such judgment that you can't even begin to comprehend. You're talking to me about a domestic issue that's going on among the people? Well, I'm going to tell you about this international issue that's going to come and handle this issue. And In other words, he, he's really bringing Habakkuk to really shaking in his boots. What he's really saying is, is you have no idea what's about to come upon you. It's in the negative. Which brings me to my first point. God works in unbelievable ways. In our lives, we find that God works in unbelievable ways. And he works in ways that we cannot begin to comprehend or even understand. See, oftentimes, whenever we're speaking about God, we want the unbelievable ways to be favorable to us because God works th- everything together for good for those that love him. And it's true, but it doesn't mean that we won't go through hardship. It doesn't mean that God's not going to bring chastisement or judgment. And it's not always the case that's being so good in the moment, as we can see here. God is doing something that we cannot wrap our finite minds around. It's like trying to explain to someone with a cart and a horse in the 1500s that one day we would walk on the moon. It's that crazy to them. See, God was doing a work that they wouldn't or couldn't believe. And when he does that, he challenges their perspective, and he challenges our perspective. See, we have this tendency to take God and put him in a box that we can control. That God's this divine genie. That God has to operate according to the laws. After we rub the lamp, the magic lamp, which is the Bible that we get God to do what we want, we take promises and we manipulate God. Let me tell you right now, God cannot be manipulated. But we do. We think this all the time. We put in a little bit, it's like God is this divine ATM. I put in obedience, give me the blessing. And it's true that when we do obey that there is blessing. There is that understanding that is within Scripture. So we don't want to, to throw that completely out. But God will never, ever be manipulated. And we have this tendency to do that, thinking that we are wiser than God. Or maybe God's not looking. And I can do it when God's not looking and that he's not going to know about it. We're like little children that the, the parent says, Don't go in the freezer to get the popsicle. And when you walk out of the room, you hear the, hear the freezer door open. And we hope that they won't know. And you look in the freezer and you go, Wow, there's a wrapper in there that must. And you realize you pick it up and there's nothing in it because the kid took it out, and realized that you were counting it. That's what we, that's in many ways, that's how we are with God. But God cannot be manipulated. And he has this way of blowing our perspective out of the water. He will allow us to go into situations that will change how we think. To experience pain that God doesn't, That doesn't fit in what we understand. I know this firsthand in my own life. Uh, When I was, when we were going through our really difficult time, when the economy went down in 2008, 2009, we found ourselves sleeping on our our friend's couch, and I'm thinking, oh, I have all this education, and I should have this kind of job, and, and what's wrong, God? And God was really challenging me, saying, you know what, you don't need all that, you need me. It's not about the right school or doing this right thing. You think that you can control and manipulate me by doing all this good stuff. I read the right Bible. I go to the right conferences. I listen to the right teachers. I do all the right stuff. Why don't you give me this, God? See, we have this tendency to think that we can control. And God sometimes says, no, 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 I, don't, I can operate any way I want. And he blows our perspective out of the water, and he challenges our perspective. And that's what he was doing. As he was saying to Judah, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. Now, that's like saying to us now, to the United States, I am going to raise up Guyana. You'd be like, Guyana? What's Guyana? Where's Guyana? It's well, a small country in South America. And we're like, they're going to be this world power? Come on. We'd laugh at it. But he's saying, I'm going to raise them up. And I'm going to do something in and through them that you cannot even believe to fathom. I'm going to blow your worldview out of the water for a moment. I'm going to show you that I'm the all-powerful, almighty God and that I'm the one that's in charge. So he challenges our perspective. God can't, God can't be placed in a box. God also changes the world order here, just as I showed before. Look at verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Not their own. The Chaldeans were an upstart people lowly among the great world powers, settled among the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. But God was changing the status quo, and these low figures were going to become a world power. We couldn't even begin to fathom it. It's, that, it's so crazy. But we have to remember that God is not bound by our understanding of things. Sometimes we think that God is beholden to the world and that he is the one who is constantly responding to a world events as if he didn't know they were happening. But that is a low view of God. He is no puppet, nor is he wringing his hands and bowing down to people and what's going on. Do you think all the things that happen in the world are happening without God's allowance or knowledge? Sometimes we act as if God's surprised and how he's responding to, to try to make it better. No, he's the sovereign God, the all-powerful God. He's working everything out for his good purpose in his own time. And that's the next thing that we must know is that God controls everything. Here God is saying that I'm doing a work that you can't imagine. He's done this before. Matter of fact, one of the greatest stories of this is found in 2 Kings chapter 6. You may not be familiar with this story. Allow me to, to relate it to you. But there, there the king of Aram was attacking the city of Samaria, which is in the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. This was years ago. They couldn't fight them, so they decided to wait them out, making sure there was no way for them to get any food. So they couldn't actually break down the walls. I've actually seen this happen. If you've ever been to Israel, there's a, a place there called Masada, uh, which is an actual, like, a, a plateau, like a mountain, and it's cut off on the top. And there they have a living area around it. And the Romans actually went to go capture some Jewish zealots who had uh, taken this, like, garrison over. It had become a Roman garrison after it had been King Herod's, or Herod the Great's palace, his summer palace. It's huge structure, you have to hike up to get it, and so uh, these Jewish zealots had taken it over after Herod's death, and after some Romans had had it as a garrison, and they fled Jerusalem, knew they were going to be killed, so they were, in essence, getting there, so they knew that the Roman army couldn't get to them, uh, and the Roman army, what they decided to do was starve them out. So they surrounded it and even built up an earthen ramp to get to them. And that's exactly what the Babylonians would do. They would build these earthen ramps and wait, the Jews uh, would try to kill the Romans that were building it. So what they, the Romans did was actually use Jewish slaves to help build the ramp because they knew that these zealous Jews would not kill their own people. And eventually they would break through. And as they're waiting him out, they're starving. And that's what's going on in 2 Kings chapter 6, is the king of Aram is camped around the Sumerians. The Sumerians are starving to death. There is no food. It's so bad, it got so bad that a donkey, which normally wasn't eaten, was slaughtered, and its head was sold for 80 pieces of silver. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to us, but... A live horse sold for 150 pieces of silver, and here a donkey's head, which was also, the head itself wouldn't be eaten, not just the animal, but the head was often not eaten, was going for 80 pieces of silver. So they were so hungry, so bad, that it says that a liter of a dove's dung would cost what an average worker uh, could make in six months. This is how bad they're starving, okay, in Second Kings chapter 6. And I have a purpose for this. I really want to, to draw out how God is operating here. And so the people are, are starving, And it gets so bad that the king is walking along and he's thinking about this when a woman calls out to him from the top of uh, a wall and she says, king, grant me justice. And he says, what do you need justice for? She goes, well, the other day, me and this woman were starving so much that we made a pact together that we would kill our sons and then eat our children. This is how bad it was, okay? And she goes, so we killed my son and ate him. And then now this woman has hidden away her son and she won't let us eat him. Give me justice. He tears his robes. He's so broken. This is how bad it is, right? This is no Veggie Tales episode, All right? This is this is scripture. Just shows how bad it really got. So he tears his robes, and he says the reason for the cause of this is the prophet Elisha. It's because of him that we're in this situation. So he sends his messenger off to go kill him, and as he right after he sends him sends him out, he has a change of heart. And he actually runs after this messenger right before he gets to Elisha's door. Elisha knows he's coming, has the door barred, and then just right at that time, uh, the king shows up and says, We're in bad, okay? Don't don't kill him. We're in a really bad situation right here. Has God has God forgotten us? And then Elisha responds to him in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 2, and he says, This You will see, you're gonna be delivered. Matter of fact, there's going to be food. For you. So much so that the next day the conditions are going to improve so much that good products would be available again, even though at a substantial price. But uh, the king, his chief aide, hears the statement. He goes, we're going to have all this food tomorrow. You're nuts. Even if God himself would open up the windows in heaven, it's crazy what you're saying to me right now, that we're going to have all of this different food tomorrow. You're nuts. And Elisha looks at him and he says, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. And then what happens the next day is completely crazy. These four lepers were starving, and they were at the city gate. And rather than die there by doing nothing, nothing, they decided to go to the Aramean camp and surrender. And they thought, well, what, what happens if we go to the camp and they, we surrender to them? They might kill us. We're going to die anyway, so what's the point? Or they could have mercy on us and feed us. So they go to this Aramean camp because they know that surrounded them. They've been starving forever. And they get there, and there's nobody there. The horses are left behind, donkeys, food's everywhere, all their stuff's out, tents are empty. And we read in the text what happened, because they're wondering themselves, what happened? But in Second Kings chapter 7, verse 6, it says this, The Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding horses, and the galloping of horses, and the sounds of a great army approaching, and they panicked, freaked out, dropped everything, and ran for their lives. Middle of the night so here god now has this all this food everything available for them these guys these guys are like this is awesome so they start eating and they're having a the time getting you know getting fed and they go you know what we got to tell some other people about this or they find out that we know this and we're going to be killed so we got to go tell people about this so they go back and they tell the king and the king's like Whoa. So he sends a scout. scout comes back and goes, it's true. And then he goes, hey, there's food for everybody. The whole crowd, I mean, the whole city starts running out through the gates. Now the chief aide who said, could God do this? He's in charge of the gate, and they trample him to death. Now what's my point in giving you that story? Just like with that aide, many of us are like, God can't do this. God can't do that. We have this limited understanding of God. He can do whatever he wants to do. He controls everything. He does everything in his own time and in his own way and we have to be able to rest in that and that's a hard thing to do now for many of us we can accept that God works in unbelievable ways we're okay with that what we have a hard time with though is when God works through unworthy people You know that person that you know that it's at your workplace, maybe a neighbor, maybe a friend of yours, maybe it's your family member. You would call them, I mean, these people that really grate you. And you wonder why, how God doesn't just take them out. We have these people in our lives, people that we really struggle with. How could God use them? Look how bad they are. Look at them. They're not following God. I'm trying to follow God. Why, Lord? Why? See that's what he was doing with the Chaldeans. He was using the Chaldeans as his sword to bring judgment on his own people. And that was unfathomable to Habakkuk. Why would God do this? Why would he, he use I mean Chaldeans, why would he use these people and he describes how bad they really are. But we have to understand God is not beholden to us. One of the greatest prophecies in all of scripture is about a guy named King Cyrus. He's the king of the Persians. Sometime later, after we see what we see in Habakkuk, after Babylon had conquered Israel, and the Jews were taken into captivity for 70 years, seventy years, God raised up Persia, specifically Cyrus the Great, to conquer Babylon. So we're looking ahead uh, some 80, 90 years. And in his first year as ruler, he read from the Jewish prophet Isaiah. Actually, Isaiah 44, 24 through 45, 25 And Isaiah had prophesied that there would come a Cyrus. He names him by name. He mentions King Cyrus, who would be his anointed, who would restore Jerusalem and start the rebuild of the temple. After Cyrus heard this, he made a proclamation that the historian Josephus records. He says this, Thus saith Cyrus the king, Since God Almighty hath appointed me to be king of the habitable earth, I believe that he is that God which the nation of the Israelites worship. For indeed, he foretold my name by the prophets, that I should build him a house in Jerusalem in the country of Judea. Now, why is this amazing? There's two things why it's amazing. One, it's amazing because Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus's coming 170 years before he came. By name. This is, you can look this up in the historical record. You can see who Cyrus is in history. You can see when the Old Testament was written, especially Isaiah. And no, this—I mean, this shows that it's of God. By the way, that we can trust the Scriptures that He's prophesying about this prophet. I mean, this king who is the only pagan unbeliever who is ever called God's anointed. He is God's anointed, meaning that God is going to use His—I pe- mean, use people any way that He wants to. And it's not just amazing that it was done 170 years before, but it's because again, He is an unbeliever but he's called the Lord's anointed. He wasn't worthy of such a designation, but God has a way of using unbelievers of fulfilling his purposes. Now here, God doesn't just use people that are sympathetic toward him and his people. It's much worse. He often sends people who are dangerous to bring about his will in our lives. Look at verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that bitter, now this bitter means embittered, galling, fierce, And they're a hasty nation, which means they were impetuous or rash. They didn't care about anyone but themselves. They came in like a fury, destroyed whatever they wanted to, and didn't take time to sort out things, resulting in greater injustices. So these guys were dangerous. And he'll bring people into our lives that we just are really driving us nuts, and we want to get away from them. And sometimes God brings us into situations and interacts with individuals, not so that we can try to get out of them, but that he can shape us. I had one preacher I heard call people like this sandpaper people. They're the people that are trying to rough the rub edges off of us that God is using to smooth us out, to transform us. These guys, though, are especially dangerous. And they're disciplined, they're fierce. They marched from one land to another, captured homes and people. They were great horsemen, quick to devour and destroy others. These are people who come into our lives, who seem to have it all together and use their talents, not for God, but for evil. And they're also determined. They wouldn't be denied. They came from far away. They don't care about who they're fighting against. We have people we interact with all the time who are determined, who have no fear of God before them. Matter of fact, they are determined to do evil. We encounter this each and every day. Just read the news at any point in time. And you have people all the time that are even trying to legislate evil that are trying to say that this is okay. Not only that, but if you disagree with it, you are evil for disagreeing with us for wanting to do this evil act. And we're encountering this all the time. And that's we have to understand something. And I want to go to to the elections for a moment. And I've shared this before. I was in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at a church called Allegheny Center Alliance Church after the 2008 election when Barack Obama became uh, President of the United States. Very historical election, First African-American. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, become President of the United States. It's a, it's a great advancement for our country. Uh, but at the same time, as I showed up at this church, this church was multi-ethnic, and you had bumper stickers of both uh, Obama, and I want to say, who was running in 2008? Was that McCain? McCain? So you had both these bumper stickers. So half the church was jubilant the, the, the Tuesday after the election. The other ch- half of the church was completely depressed. And the pastor gets up and he says one thing. He goes, shame on both of you. Let me tell you right now, God will put his person into office, his anointed. Because every group is saying, hey, it's God's man, God's man. Every time I hear a politician claim anything about Christ, it's God's will, it's God's will. You know what? It's true. It's God's will. Because God will use that person for blessing or for judgment. It'll be God's person for blessing or for judgment, and that's what we have here. The Chaldeans are God's people for that moment for judgment, not for blessing. And so that could be for any election, by the way. And so I I cringe when people say, it's God's person. You have no idea what God is doing. Your job is to seek God and understand, yes, we are to exercise our rights as citizens of the United States, but God is not in the White House, and he never has been. And we are the citizens of a greater heavenly kingdom that transcends that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be politically active. I'm not saying that at all. Please hear me. But understand that when people approach politics, we have a tendency to approach it from black and white. And the people have all these different experiences and backgrounds and things in their lives that shape it. We have to be, become aware of that and understand that God, will, God is still in charge. And we have this tendency to think that, oh, if this person got elected, God failed. He didn't fail. He sometimes will give people over to the products of their sin and what they want for judgment. And that's what he's doing here. God is saying to the the nation of Israel, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. They're going to be my people and they're going to be my sword and I'm going to use them for my purpose and it's going to be for a purpose of judgment. So these people were determined. They were also dreaded. And you know what this is like. You know these people in your life that you, you just dread seeing. You dread hearing about. You dread interacting with. Matter of fact, this was the, the text says it very clearly. Look at verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They have their own definitions of right and wrong. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They're fast, destructive, Such a description would have been terrifying to Habakkuk's audience. The horsemen of the ancient world were like tanks today. He was describing a terrifying army that God would raise up, and they would come down on them. It was horrifying. Why? Only God knows. He was bringing judgment because the nation had turned against him. Again, as C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Very true. So, they were dreaded. They were disrespectful, too. They had no concept of God. They didn't care. They scoffed at the Jewish kings, laughed at their rulers. They didn't care about them or their position, their religion. They mocked the leaders, laughed at the fortresses because they knew that they could easily destroy it easily. Uh, who has been... I mean, th- think about it. Even when uh, uh, the, the Babylonians actually even come against the, uh, the Jews... That they show up and they begin to speak to the, the rulers. And, and rather than speak uh, in a language that the common people didn't understand, they chose to speak in Hebrew so that the people even understood. And he goes, They're going to drink their own urine and eat their own filth. And the, and the leader's are like, Please don't do that. Come on. He's like, Shh, We don't care about you. They're like, you God. Your God is going to protect you from us. Even insulting God going that far. And God will use people like that. God's not threatened by that, but God will even use that, and that should terrify us. Because it makes us wonder then, what are we to do? How are we to respond? This is not a uplifting message. It's actually quite depressing. See, they're disrespectful, and these men were governed by their own desires. Look at verse 7. Dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, uh, I like how the New Living Translation puts it, they are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. They don't care. They live by their own law. We see this all the time in our world. People doing whatever they want. Look on Instagram, Snapchat. See what's put up in our media. Look at our politicians. They say whatever they want. They do whatever they want. And it's like, where, where's God? Where, God, where are you in the middle of all this? Why, why God, do you allow this to happen? It could be for blessing, to sharpen his church, or it could be for judgment, too. They're governed by their own desires. They do whatever they want, seem to, uh, and seem to prosper in whatever they do. It's quite depressing when you look at it, but the one good thing about these kind of people is that their desires will lead to their destruction. I understand, God might use them for a time. But that doesn't mean that uh, he might use them as an agent or a vessel of his justice, and it might seem like their justice is denied them, but justice delayed is not justice denied. Justice delayed is not justice denied, meaning that God is working things out in his own
1: timetable for his own ways. And they contain within themselves seeds of their own destruction. See, look at verse 11.
0: Then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their god. That's the hint that he's giving there. His own might is their god, meaning that God himself will not allow them to continue. They might worship their own power, their own strength, their own vanity, but eventually God is going to use that as a means of their own judgment. We see that. We see that uh, you've heard the saying, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. It's the same idea. They contain within this their own judgment. Now, I want to finish up with how we can learn to rest in his unexplainable purposes. You know, I've talked about how God uh, works in unbelievable ways. I've talked about how he works through unworthy people. But we have to learn, how how do we live in the middle of this society and in this world where we have these difficult people all around us? This isn't what people want to hear. So we have a tendency to Christianize ways that enable us to get out of situations that we're in, not stay in them. We are great at finding excuses. We're great at finding excuses. Oh, God doesn't want me to be in that. And it may well be. But for often not, that's our go-to. We understand, when when I hear people say that, oh, I need, I I went out of this marriage, it wasn't what I expected it to be. Or I went out of this job, it wasn't what I expected it to be. And, And we have to understand, sometimes God is directing us and allowing us to go through things for his, for unexplained purposes that we may not see on this side of eternity or know why. Now, he may, he might let us know. Or he may not. That's in, up to him. Our job is to trust. But I want to finish up with how we can learn to rest in his unexplainable purposes, his unexplainable purposes. I'm going to go through this rather quickly. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, we read, "O oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Job learned this lesson. Remember, he lost his family, career, health. It got so bad that his breath stunk and his wife saw his misery and said, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job responded in verse 10 of Job chapter 2 verse 10, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. See, Job knew that God's purposes went far beyond his pay grade. Nevertheless, After three counselors gave reason after reason for his misery. And that's what we as evangelicals have a tendency to do. I want to give a reason for it. I want to understand it. And Job is saying time and time again as he's interacting with these different counselors. That's not the reason. That's not the reason. That's not the reason. He remains so steadfast that in Job 13, verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. And in Job 19, 25 through 27, we see his faith for I know that my redeemer lives, and at last he will stand bef- upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. He didn't understand it all, but what he understood, he rested in. However, at the end of the book, at the end of the book, God shows up in a whirlwind, and he rebukes the counselors that Job had. But he answers Job. Because Job still wants to understand why he suffered so much. And God doesn't give him the answer. God begins to take Job on a journey much greater and far beyond himself. He takes him through all of creation. How it came to be. How it is sustained. His purpose was to show that he, that God was doing something far greater and more wonderful than Job could ever begin to even wrap his mind around. And he simply needed to rest in it. See, that's what we are to do. Recognize that God is not tame, but he is good. His ways are far above our, beyond, our own, and God desires that we recognize his ways are not our own. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 through 9 is a great verse. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's pretty unimaginable for us. God's purposes are far beyond us, and we must learn to rest in them. God has brought us into the situations that we're in for a reason, one that may or may not enable us to know on this side of eternity. Some things are easy to answer simply because of our free will and disobedience. Other things are much more difficult, and we have to recognize that His ways are not our own. Next, when we do realize that we have wronged Him and our suffering is because of that, we must make sure that we run to Him in repentance. Because who knows, God may alleviate our circumstances and remove the consequences of our actions, or he may not. It's like David with Bathsheba after he had committed adultery with her. There was a child, a pregnancy, that was the pr- product of their adultery. The child became sick, and God said he was going to take the life of the child, but David humbled himself with fasting. But when he learned the child was dead, he got up, bathed, ate, and went and worshipped the Lord to the astonishment of his counselors. They couldn't believe this quick turnaround, and they asked him why. He responded in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? He thought, maybe God will respond. God is gracious and merciful. God might respond. In this case, God did not. He still had to suffer the consequences. But in another example, such as in uh, the book of Jonah, when the city of Nineveh is told that it's going to perish in 40 days, and Jonah goes on his preaching ministry, saying to repent, the nation responds in repentance and sackcloth and ashes, and then God averts his judgment, the consequences for their sin. So sometimes God will still, even when we ask for mercy, will still have us go through the consequence of our action. And there's other times that He will alleviate that consequence in His mercy and grace. He's still merciful and graceful no matter what. But God cannot be put in a box. God operates on His own timetable. Our job is to run to Him in repentance when God shows us something that we know we are responsible for and are suffering for. And thirdly, after repentance, we, must, we have to respond in obedience. Repentance is one thing, but obedience is something else entirely. Repentance without obedience is emotionalism. Obedience without repentance is a misnomer. Repentance without obedience is emotionalism. Like, I repent, I'm great, but nothing, it doesn't stick. But obedience without repentance, that doesn't happen. Because part of being obedient is being repentant. Repentant goes with obedience like wet goes with water. They are to be together and cannot be separated. Lastly, we have to rest in what he knows is best. The most difficult thing for us to do, we want answers, in fact. Scholars have been debating these issues for decades. Some have come up with suitable answers. Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow this? But almost all of them fall short in one way or another simply because the finite are trying to figure out and and define the infinite. And the categories don't apply. At the end of the day, we can trust in Him and know that His way is best. We can fight against it. I bet you can guess which, under which heading peace is found. Now, I want to conclude with this. Is God not making sense for you right now? I have a feeling that for many, there's many people that are going through some serious stuff. I've had several people in my office over the past few weeks, been on the phone. I know that so many people are going through things where you're like, God isn't making sense to me right now. We're to trust in Him and and do what I said earlier. Pray the Psalms, but also pray. I want to conclude the service today with something a little bit different because not only do I believe God isn't making sense in individuals' lives, there's some things that have been happening in our church that I consider to be satanic attacks. Um, you know when you're when you see a, an overt attack, it's pretty obvious. But I've had more than. Uh, different cases of different marriages people are really struggling for several different things and and i've seen just the hand of the evil one because i believe that god is doing a work in our midst that only he can receive glory for but i also know that when god is doing a work the devil doesn't like it and god could be using these things for our judgment that there's something that we need to do that we need to repent of as a church it could be our own disobedience our own laziness our own desire to be comfortable our own apathy and so what I'm going to ask us to do right now, and if you're a guest here today, uh, this isn't something we do normally, uh, but what I want to do is I want to practice what is called TONGSUNG KIDO, and it's not a form of martial arts, okay? TONGSUNG KIDO, and for anyone who comes from a Korean background, forgive me if I pronounce that wrong. Uh, but this is a practice, it's a practice of prayer that several different churches uh, in Korea, actually in Africa, it's different parts of the world, probably everywhere here but in the United States, but it's a time where everybody prays at once, Out loud. And this is something we're going to try. I'm not saying it's something we'll do forever. We're going to try it today. It's a time of prayer. And I want it to be a time of confession. Uh, And and a time, again, if you're the only one talking, it's going to be awkward. (laughs) Okay? But it's a time where we need to make confession. And we need to be more engaged. And I think we need to confess. I also think we need to intercede. Ask God to place his hand upon our church, not just for protection, but to empower us. We've talked several times. We have this tendency to talk of the verse. We referred to this a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 18, uh, where Jesus is talking to Peter, and uh, he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. We have this tendency to think that the gates of hell are coming against the church, but it's actually the church that are coming against the gates of hell, And meaning the gates of hell can't hold back God's kingdom and his people and his purposes. And so we need to pray that God will embolden us to push forth his gospel all over the world. But especially be faithful in our community. So confession, uh, intercession, empowerment, and then let's thank him for what he, for who he is and all that he's done, and all he's going to do. Okay? So I'm going I'm to give you the one first one, we're going to do this a minute apiece for each one. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you stand up. Okay? And I'm going to, I'm going to I'm going to uh, I'm going to start the prayer off. And after one minute, I'm going, to kind of, I'm going to start it off just for a second, and then I'm going to let you guys continue to pray. And then I'm going to come back in after the end of that minute to close that session. And then I'm going to give you the second thing, and I'm going to start that off, and I want you to pray out loud. Okay? Again, I know for some people this is something completely not normal for you. Uh, this is unusual, but I believe we do need to seek God together. Okay? So the first one, what are we doing? Confession. So let's take a moment, and we're going to pray this. Ready? I'm going to start off, and you guys all pray out loud. I'm going to start it, and after like five seconds, you just pray out loud, okay? Don't worry about me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that you've done. And Lord, we want to come and confess right now before you. Go ahead and pray. Just pray. Everybody pray. We want to confess our sins, whatever it might be. Lord, we confess our being disobedient for not speaking the truth to the community around us, for not seeking you in prayer. Lord, we, we confess our own desire for our own comfort. Lord, please be with us. to place his hand upon us, to empower us, to protect us, that his gospel might go forth. Let's pray that way. it out let's hear a thanks for God for what he's done in your life for what he's done in our church let's thank him let's praise him for he is good he is merciful to us he loves us with an everlasting love Work of Jesus Christ, Lord, we stand not in our own righteousness, for we have none. And O oh, Lord, our God, we pray that You are merciful to us. Forgive us for our disobedience. Forgive us for not being vigilant in our fight against sin. Forgive us for not taking advantage of the opportunities to share Your gospel. To take advantage of the freedoms that we have day in and day out that those in other countries would relish, would die for. And Lord, we become lazy. Forgive us for our laziness, Lord. Please. Keep us from judgment, but Lord, use us, be merciful unto us, and help us to be a vessel for your hand, to be wielded and used in your community to show forth your gospel, the truth of who you are, and all of your grace, all of your power, all of your love, Lord, supremely shown in the depth of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that he was crucified for us, and we were crucified to the world through him. Lord, we thank you for your mercy that was supremely shown to us. And Lord, forgive us of our sin. We have let allowed sin to build up in our lives. And Lord, just as Habakkuk prayed and he was calling out for you to intercede and wondering why. And Lord, you were saying, I'm going to do a work. Lord, please, if that work is for us, if there's something like that going on in our own lives, please be merciful unto us. Stay your hand of judgment and use us for the glory, honor, and praise of your name. Not our own name not the name of our church, not any name of one personality, but be be the mighty name of Jesus Christ that we extend to the nations around us, the people that we interact with day in and day out that are lost in darkness and need the hope and light and life of Christ. So Lord, empower us, direct us. Use us for the glory, honor, and praise of your holy and awesome name and for the extension of your kingdom, not just here, but all over the world until every knee shall bow and every tongue will come together and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, be with us. Empower us, Help us to go our separate ways today, knowing that we are emissaries of your kingdom. And Lord, may our minds dwell on the thought of you. May we rest in the knowledge of you, knowing that you do love us. Though we've heard about judgment that was to come, Lord, we are grateful for your mercy that was shown supremely through Christ. Lord, knowing that he, in many ways, was judged on our behalf and that we have new life in and through him. May we live as that. May we live truly as your citizens of your kingdom. May we be found worthy of the calling you have placed in our lives. We thank you we praise you for all that you have done and all you're going to do in our lives. And all of God's people said, Amen.